0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Tonight we come to the P um, in the tulip acrostic, which is probably the least controversial, at least for Baptists. If, in a Baptist history... Um, The issue of eternal security, perseverance of the saints, has not really been a big debated topic, especially among Southern Baptists. Um, My whole life growing up in Southern Baptist churches, I was always taught eternal security. Uh, You may have heard it called once saved, always saved, or eternal security. And so, at least for me growing up, it's never been an issue I've struggled with. And so, um, this may be a little bit more familiar ground because at least... If you're from more of a Baptistic background, um, the perseverance of the saints is kind of who we are. But in a nutshell, what we're saying is, <clears throat> is that a true believer, a true Christian, cannot lose his or her salvation. Okay, and so there's two sides to the same coin. Okay, I want you to think of it with two sides of the same coin. One side is eternal security; the other side is perseverance of the saints. Okay, they're, they're, they're one and the same, but they're a little bit different. There's a little bit of different nuance between them. They, you really can't have one without the other. And so uh, let me give you a definition of this doctrine. I, I have it there on your sheet. And then we're just going to dive into the scriptures tonight and look at some of these things. But I thought it would be helpful just to kind of give you a definition and then let, look at the scriptures. And so here's a definition. This is Sean Cole's definition, I guess, if you, for lack of a better, better term. Those whom, the God, those whom God the Father has elected... And those for whom Jesus the Son has died, and those for whom the Spirit has given the new birth, can neither totally nor finally lose their salvation, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. This doctrine does not mean that everyone who at one time professes faith will endure to the end, but only true believers who are possessors of faith. It also does not mean that true believers can't fall into times of grievous sins or a season of disobedience. God will discipline his children and ensure they come back to him. But ultimately and finally, a true regenerated believer can never lose his or her salvation. Okay? Do you notice the difference between a professor of faith and a possessor of faith? It's kind of a play on words there. You may have met somebody who, um, quote-unquote, accepted Christ. They maybe went forward in an altar call. Uh, it looked like, from all intents and purposes, they had become a Christian, and then later on down the road, they, they, they walked away, they fell away, they, they, they have a lifestyle that doesn't show anything related to Christianity. Um, the doctrine is saying that they may have professed faith, they may have actually said, I'm a Christian, but they actually never possessed faith. You see the difference? They may never have truly been regenerated. They may have never truly been saved. They may have just said a prayer and gone through the motions, but they never truly had a heart transformation. Okay, so let's just kind of um, look at this in in relationship to the Trinity. Remember how we're kind of talking about the Trinity and how it all works together? If you think about the Trinity, God the Father has chosen people. Jesus the Son has died for people, and the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, has regenerated those people. And so when you think about the, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, it really kind of makes sense that what God started in eternity past, and what God started in our salvation, he's going to carry on to completion. He's going to finish what he started. As a matter of fact, let's look at that passage of Scripture there in Philippians 1.6. Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice the certainty that Paul uses there. He says, I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. That what is God going to do? What God started in your salvation, he's going to complete. God's going to finish the work. Now, we've been looking at the Gospel of John for a long time over these past few weeks. And John 6, John 3, John 10, John 17. Let's go back to John 6 where we've hung out a lot. And let's look and see the words of Jesus Christ himself about this whole issue of eternal security. John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, I've kind of put those in bold and italics for you to see the emphatic words of Jesus. He's saying, those that come to me, if you come to Christ in salvation, he's never going to cast you out. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's not going to lose you. He's going to keep you saved. He's going to guard you to the end. All that the Father gives me will come, and I will never cast them out. Now, let me tell you how those that lean towards Arminianism deal with this whole doctrine, okay? Because when you look at the five points of the doctrines of grace, and you look at the five points of Arminianism, when we get to this last point, Arminians do believe you can lose your salvation, Okay? They believe that you, can, that you can lose your salvation. Now, here's what they say. Okay? They say that Jesus doesn't lose us because of these passages that talk about Jesus holding us. What they will say is that we choose to walk away. It's our choice. We choose to walk away, and because God values our free will so much, he's not going to stop us. If we choose to cast, Jesus will never cast us out, but if we choose to cast ourselves out, If we choose to walk away, Jesus is going to let us because he values our will, okay? So they'll look at those passages that talk about Jesus being sovereign, but they'll say that we are the ultimate determiner to walk away from that. We can choose to walk away from our salvation, okay? So what I want us to do tonight is I want us to look at two sides of this coin, eternal security being one side. Okay, here's eternal security. Eternal security is that you are secure in your salvation, You will never lose your salvation. You are eternally secure. The flip side of that coin is perseverance of the saints. We have a responsibility to endure to the end. And they work hand in hand. And so I'm going to explain to to you how those work. So let's just look at the scriptures. We're just going to look at scripture tonight. That's all we're going to do. Not going to be so much philosophical as much as just scripture. What do the scriptures teach about eternal security? Well, let's go to John chapter 10. Let's, Let's just listen to the words of Jesus. And this is probably... I'm going to give you right off from the, from, the, from the beginning here the two most emphatic statements in the Bible on eternal security. Okay, one is Jesus. You've probably heard this many, many times. John 10, 27-30. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Now, in the Greek language, in the original language there, when Jesus says they will never perish, that word never, it's in what we call a double negative. Okay, so it's a really, really strong way in the Greek language for Jesus to say they will never, no, not ever, ever perish. It's the strongest way you can say it in the Greek language that we will never perish. We will never die. No one will be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. Now, why? Why are we secure in the grip of Jesus? Let's look here. First of all, Jesus gives them eternal life as a gift. What does Jesus say? I give them eternal life. If Jesus gives you a gift of eternal life, is he an Indian giver? Is he going to take it back and say, I gave you the gift, but I'm going to take it back. I give them eternal life. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is, he says, the Father is greater than all. So the Father is even greater than your own sin that would cause you to somehow stumble beyond his grasp. The Father is greater. No one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. The devil can't come along and cause you to lose your salvation. No one can because the Father is greater. And then Jesus makes a statement there. He says, I and the Father are one. There's the unity of the Father and the Son. <clears throat> Do you notice whose hands we're in? Not whose hand, but whose hands. What does Jesus say there? No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you almost have a double grip. You were, we're in Jesus' hand, we're in the Father's hand. And because Jesus and the Father are one, we're in the, almost like the double grip of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Okay? Okay? We could probably just stop there, okay, and just say, okay, that, that settles it. Jesus says, no one can snatch us out of his hand, we'll never perish, we are, we are in God's grip forever. But let's just go on and look at this passage in Romans 8. This is probably, for a lot of us, a really encouraging passage of Scripture. Um, let's just get real practical here. When you're discouraged, when you're doubting your salvation, when you're feeling a little bit um, maybe down or depressed, and life is coming at you, things aren't going your way. What does Romans 8, 35 through 39 tell us? Let's read the words of Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice Paul's wording there that he said back in Philippians 1 6. He says, No, I am sure of this. I've got the confident assurance that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. Now, some that may believe you can lose your salvation, they may say, well, Jesus or Paul didn't say me. I can choose to separate myself from God's love and walk away from my salvation. What does Paul say there? I mean, he goes to great lengths to give us this long list, and he, he kind of comes in and says, nothing else in all of creation. So, are you a part of creation? Is a human being part of creation? Paul is really saying in a very emphatic way, there's nothing in this world. There's, neither, there's, there's height nor death, angels, demons. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. If you're a true Christian, you are eternally secure. Nothing can separate you from God's love. That's a great encouragement. I don't know about you guys. That's a great encouragement to me. To know that you're solid in Jesus' grip. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And I'm not going to talk about this because this is my sermon this Sunday. So you're just going to have to wait. But I'll read the passage and give you a little taste. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you're just going to have to wait on that one Okay, on Sunday. Colossians, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, 3 through 4. This is a very interesting terminology that Paul uses here to talk about our salvation. He says, For you have died, and your life is what? Hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says here, your life has died. Okay, we talked a little bit about that last week. When you become a Christian, your old self dies and you become a new self. You're a new creation. But how does he describe our position right now? We are what? Hidden with Christ. Now, that word hidden, and I've talked a lot about Greek over the past few weeks, it's in the perfect tense. And I'm going to talk a lot about the perfect tense tonight because most of these eternal security passages have the perfect tense. What's the perfect tense? An action came to a completion in the past, but it has continuing ongoing results that stand completed in the present. Okay? There's simple past tense action. I went to the store. That's not what the perfect tense is. The perfect tense is, I was, my life was hidden with Christ when I became a Christian, but I continue to be hidden with Christ, and I will always be hidden with Christ. It's a perfected type of action. It makes a whole lot more sense, and it, and it makes the, the, the meaning of the words a lot stronger when the perfect tense is used in the Greek language. It shows that it wasn't just a one time thing. It's something that happened to you, but you're continuing, it's continuing to happen to you. Does that make sense? It's, it's a perfected action. And that's what that word hidden there is. We were hidden with Christ at our salvation, but we continue to be hidden, which means we're protected, we're guarded. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. That's a little bit of last week's. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what does he cause us to be born again to? Verse 4, to an inheritance. Okay, how does Peter describe the inheritance? He gives three definitions. Imperishable, which means what? It can't be corrupted. It can't die. Undefiled. It's not going to be spoiled. And unfading, it's never going to go away. So our inheritance is permanent. And he says it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word kept that Peter uses there is really the word reserved. Our inheritance is on reserve in heaven. Guess what tense it's in? The perfect tense. Which means that 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 inheritance is always going to be there. It's on permanent reserve in heaven for us. It's a lasting, permanent inheritance. It's there for us. It's not like we're going to walk up to the gates of heaven, check in at the hotel, if you will, and God's going to say, I lost your reservation, I'm sorry. It's permanent. And then notice what else it says there. By God's power, we're being guarded through faith. So this, is, this combines eternal security with perseverance of the saints you see this whole idea that God is guarding us, God is preserving us, God is going to ensure by his power that we, get to the, that we get to the finish line, that we are shielded. It was used to describe an army of troops that would protect a city from an oncoming enemy. So when it says God is guarding us, it's not some type of passive thing that God does, but God is almost like an army. He's protecting us from the onslaughts that come, and he's, he's ensuring that we're going to get that 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 inheritance that's on permanent reserve for us, okay? So those are scriptures that teach eternal security, that once we are saved, we are always saved, and we cannot lose our salvation. And sometimes in Baptist life, we stop there, and that's that's halfway. The eternal security piece is, is a very important piece, but there's also the flip side of the coin, and that's perseverance, okay? A true believer will persevere to the end. One who truly possesses faith, one who's truly regenerate, will endure to the end. They will finish the race. They won't fall away. They will produce fruit. They will have a lifestyle that shows that they truly are saved. Now, we're not saying you're perfect. We're not saying you never sin. We're not saying that you reach some state of, of, of um, spiritual um, maturity that's, that's higher than anybody else. What we're saying is, is that God is going to make sure, by His grace, that you live a lifestyle that demonstrates that you were truly saved up until either you die or Christ comes back. Okay? So let's look at some passages that teach perseverance. Okay? Sometimes we also call it preservation. What's perseverance? Perseverance is our Continuing to stay in the faith. What's preservation? God preserving us to that. So you can think of it both, you can look at it all three different ways. Eternal security, preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints. I don't particularly like the term once saved, always saved. I agree with it in theology, but here's the problem in how it's abused, especially in Baptist churches. I'll just pick on us Baptists for a while, okay? Okay. Once saved, always saved, oftentimes says this. You have this mass crusade, you have a very shallow gospel presentation, and you have all these people come forward, and they may have said a prayer, or they may have raised their hand. Now, they may have been saved, okay, but they may not have. Is saying a prayer and coming forward what saves you? What saves you? Trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sins, having that life transformation They may have just done an action, but yet what happens is, let's say, let's say, um, well, let's play it this way. As a as an adult, I can manipulate children. Okay, let's just put it that way. If I had, if if I went into Team Kid right now and had all those fifty kids in front of me, I could probably talk a lot of them into a decision. Four or five year old kids, I could talk them into a decision because they want to please their pastor, and I can be real persuasive. Don't you want to go to heaven? Who wants to go to heaven? Well, who's, everybody's going to raise their hand, right? Who wants to go to hell? I mean, who's going to raise their hand? Okay, everybody, all right, everybody wants to go to heaven, raise your hand. Okay, you're saved. You go to your mom and dad and you say, guess what? Johnny raised his hand and said, I want to go to heaven, so he's saved. Okay, Johnny starts to grow up, and when he's 12, 13, 14, he's acting like he doesn't want anything to do with God. He's living a rebellious lifestyle, he's showing no fruit. He's showing no evidence of salvation. And and the parents come to you and say, I'm just so, I'm worried about Johnny. He's not living like a Christian. And then you ask the parents, well, is he a Christian? Well, yeah, obviously he's a Christian. He raised his hand to ask Jesus into his heart and go to heaven when he was five. Once saved, always saved, right? Don't question your salvation. You see what I'm saying? He may have been saved, but he may not have been. So we need to be careful when we use the word once saved, always saved. That's half of it. A true believer will demonstrate fruit. A true believer will show evidence of salvation. Now, we need to be real careful. We'll talk about this later. You can't judge a person's salvation. We don't want to be so much fruit inspectors that we're judgmental. We need to be real careful. We need to be real sensitive, especially when parents come and they're, they're legitimately concerned about their child. We need to have some care about how you deal with stuff like that. But we're saying that a true, regenerated authentic, born-again believer, will be eternally secure, and they will demonstrate a lifestyle to the end that shows that they're truly a Christian. Does that make sense? All right, let's look at some of these scriptures. Jesus says in Mark 13, 13, and by the way, it's important, going back to the children thing, it's important that in our evangelism, we're very clear about what the gospel is. That we don't so water down... Now, we want to be relational to children and to youth, but we don't want to water it down so much that we don't clearly communicate what the gospel is. You understand what I'm saying? We just need to be real clear that we are clear on what the gospel is. Okay, Mark, enough of the preaching. Let's get back to the teaching here. Mark thirteen, thirteen. Jesus says, and this is great encouragement from Jesus, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Thanks, Jesus. I appreciate that, that word. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice Jesus says you have to endure to the end to be saved. If you don't endure, you won't be saved. Now, the Arminian says it's up to you to endure. If you don't endure, you, you can lose your salvation. Those that believe the doctrines of grace would say, no, you will endure because God will make sure you endure. You see the difference between the two? Now, all throughout the book of Revelation, if you go and look at the book of Revelation, especially to the seven churches Um, what does Jesus say at the end of all the seven churches? To to, to those who what? Overcome. To those who endure. All throughout the book of Revelation, there's this call to endure, to overcome. And true Christians will endure. True Christians will overcome. Now, how do we do this? Here's the real rub. It almost sounds contradictory. I'm eternally secure, but there's a responsibility on me to make sure I, I persevere to the end. And the answer is yes, you are eternally secure and there is a responsibility for you to persevere to the end, but how does it work? And so here's the the definition. I'll give you the teaching. The teaching of perseverance of the saints says that God by his grace will work in us to ensure that we endure. Okay? God will ensure that we endure. His grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, all of the power of God will work in your life to ensure that you will endure. That's what the teaching of perseverance of the saints means, that it's God's grace. Now let's look at some scriptures here that teach that God will do the work in you to make sure you finish the race. Okay? It's not up to you to finish the race. Evidence that you finished the race was that God had preserved you to the end. It's only by God's grace that you do that. This is not in your book. I mean, this is not in your sheet, but open your Bibles real quick. This, this scripture just came to my mind. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. You see kind of both of these in Paul's life. It's, it almost sounds like Paul's contradicting himself, but he's not because it's scripture and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you kind of see this tension between our... our um, allow me to use the word effort. Maybe I should use this word. Our pursuit of holiness are persevering in God's grace. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. It kind of sounds like Popeye, right? By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see the tension there? Paul's saying, I put forth all this effort. I persevered, I fought the fight, I fought the good fight of faith, I persevered, but at the end of the day, it wasn't I that was doing it, it was God's grace in me. I can lay my head on my pillow at night and know that God was the one that did the work. God was the one that produced the, great, the, 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 the fruit. And when Paul, at the end of like 2 Timothy, when he's dying, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, Paul could end his life knowing that I did a lot for the gospel. I worked hard. Not to earn my salvation, but the reason I did it was because God's grace was in me. And I give all the the glory to God. Okay? All right, let's go back to your sheet here. And let's look at some of these passages of Scripture that teach that God in His grace will ensure that we endure. Okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what are the promises you see there? God will do what? He will sustain you to the end. Why? Because God is faithful. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God will sustain you. God will ensure that you get to the finish line. God is faithful to make sure that true believers will be eternally secure. He will sustain you to the end. It's God that does it. You don't sustain yourself to the end. God sustains you to the end. And on that day, he's going to present you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be accepted and fit for heaven because God has done the work to ensure that you get to the finish line. Okay, 1 Corinthians, actually it was there. I put it in there. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Maybe this came... um, to me in my mind. But there it is again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than on any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. I just, we just talked about that. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. Okay, God is faithful. What's He surely going to do? He will surely do it. What's the it that God's going to do? Keep you blameless on the day of Lord Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying God's going to sustain you to the end. God's going to make sure you get to the finish line. God's going to make sure that you reach your final destination. He's faithful to make sure that you do that. His grace is going to work in you to, to enable you to do that. And then finally in Jude... Jude um, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And this speaks of God's power again. God is able. Able to do what? Powerful to do what? Keep you from stumbling. Stumbling what? Stumbling so far that you would somehow lose your salvation. God's going to keep you from losing your salvation. And what's he going to do again? He's going to present you blameless on that day. He's going to get you to the finish line. God's going to finish the work that he started. Now, I'm just going to give you a quote here from Spurgeon. Okay? Spurgeon wraps up all the doctrines of grace into one, one paragraph, okay? So i got to give you a Spurgeon, a Spurgeon quote here. Okay, here we go. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, Nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God and his dispensation of grace. Nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternally mutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. If it ever should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. What's he saying there? If it's up to me to keep myself saved, it ain't going to happen. Every day I'm going to fall. I've got to trust in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for me, his sustaining grace. And, I, and, he, and Spurgeon says, he actually says, I, any gospel that preaches you can lose your salvation, he says, I hate. Now, that's Spurgeon for you. He's getting a little, you know, riled up there. But I'm not saying that that we ha- There's those that disagree with us on the doctrine of eternal security. Okay? Probably even in this church, we have those that don't believe that, that you're eternally secure, that you can lose your salvation. Do we go to them and say, I hate your doctrine, Well, Spurgeon might if he was here. I don't think we should go to them and say, I hate your doctrine. We can have strong opinions, but what I'm trying to say is is that to me personally, this is just personally, the Scripture is so very clear, 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 that you can't lose your salvation. I don't see in my, my feeble little mind how those believe you can lose your salvation, how they justify that. Now, they're still my Christian brothers and sisters, and we agree to disagree, and, and we love each other. And remember, these aren't issues of division. These aren't issues to, to divide the house over. Um, I will say this. Let me just say this loud and clear. Okay. This class is teaching the five points of Calvinism. Okay. That is not the official doctrine of our church. The official doctrine of our church is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That's what we can all agree upon, the Baptist Faith and Message Okay? So you can agree to disagree with these points of Calvinism, and everything's hunky-dory. It's not a big deal to me. I, I, we've talked a lot about this. It doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, no, it doesn't matter. Okay? So the five points of Calvinism is not the official doctrine of our church, the Baptist faith and message is. But with that being said, let me just say this. The P in the tulip acrostic is probably the one point of Calvinism that we're going to hold fast to. And that's always been the history of Emmanuel. We will, we'll leave freedom on the other four, but when we get to the P, we're not going to budge. The eternal security is one that we hold strongly to. And so we require anybody that's going to be in a position of leadership, anybody that's going to be in a position of teaching, anybody that's going to have any teaching position to hold to eternal security, at least to the best of, the, to the best of their knowledge on that. Okay? The other point, Yes? 12 and 13, Yeah. Uh, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do with His pleasure. And my understanding of the letter to the Church of Philippi is completely military terms. talking about a master, commander, and, and we are his soldiers. And mm-hmm. we are easy really to work out his work, mm-hmm. uh, work out our deliverance through him. I and mean, he already has prepared our deliverance, but we've got to work at it. Right. Exactly, and that's a great passage. You see the tension. Everybody, turn there. Philippians two, um, and we talked about this yesterday we, in our men's study. Those, Bill, I think, was the only one um, that we talked about the the tension between what's our responsibility, what's God's responsibility. Um, you see both there in Philippians two, twelve. Twelve is our responsibility. Thirteen is God's responsibility, and you see how they work together. Okay, Philippians two, twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice he doesn't say work for. This is not a works-based salvation. It's working out, living out the salvation you've already received. Does that make sense? You're working it out. And the sense is, you know, like a military soldier in battle who's doing the business of his country. Right. We are doing his business. Right. Right, we're we obeying the commands of our, of our commanding officer. But then look at verse 13. Who's the one that does the work in us? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So at the end of the day, you're doing the work, but who's doing the work? I mean, that's the paradox. You're doing the work, but at the end of the day, God's doing the work. God's the one that's, that's his grace is at work in you. So it's so a good, good word, Kemp. Okay. There's also another issue. I was growing up always told, once saved, always saved. Never question your salvation. Never question your, never doubt your salvation. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but probably there comes times in our life when we've doubted our salvation. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, let's look at two passages of Scripture that tell us to do something. Now, we, can't, we don't want to be overly introspective and so you know, scared and frightened. It's a good thing. But we have the responsibility to examine ourselves. And we see two passages of Scripture where Paul and Peter both tell us to examine ourselves. Because there are a lot of false professions out there. In my years of pastoral ministry, I have seen people that were false converts, if you will. They made a profession of faith, but they never possessed faith. And if I come across a person, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody in my office that, you know, cur- casually associated with our church, they come in for some counseling, I begin to ask them about their salvation, I, I, I listen to their lifestyle, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing drugs, I'm, 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 I'm drinking, I'm living with my boyfriend, I'm living with my girlfriend, I'm, I've got a gambling problem, I mean, I'm being real extreme here, I've got all these issues, and then I said, "Well, tell me about your relationship with Jesus." Well, I asked Jesus in my heart when I was five. Okay, but are you saved? Oh yeah. So, are they saved? Are they not saved? I don't know. But I have had a lot of people that come in that quote unquote ask Jesus into their heart. But when you press them for, "Are you believing in Jesus now? Have you repented of your sins? Have you experienced that life transformation?" They give the deer in the headlight look to you. They don't understand. So let's look at these passages of Scripture about examining yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, okay, there's the word right there, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What are the tests? I would encourage you to go back to the book of 1 John. 1 John gives you a lot of tests that you can look at in your life to say, do I consistently display these things in my life? Not perfection, okay? He's not saying, examine yourself to see if you're perfect. It's just, as a Christian, we should be having fruit in our life. What are some of those fruits? Well, do you love God's Word? Do you pray? Do you love God's people? Do you want to be in the house of worship? Do you want to be around God's people? Are you growing in your faith, um, are you repenting of sin? Are you, are you, um, do you have a passion for Jesus? Just simple things like that. Do you have those desires in your heart? Examine yourselves. And then 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or never fall. He's saying make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're, make sure you're a Christian. How do you do that? Well, you don't make yourself a Christian. You make sure you're a Christian. And I always tell people this, if and we're going to talk about this in just a minute. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know? Is it based upon feelings? You can't trust your feelings. It's based upon what God's word says about you. If you are one who has believed in Jesus Christ, you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're trusting in him today to forgive you of your sins, you believe the promise of what the Bible says is true about you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So is our salvation based upon subjective feelings or is it based upon the objective fact that we're trusting in what Jesus did for us? That's how we know we're saved. Okay, let's talk about an interesting issue that I want to spend some time on. And that's the issue of apostasy. This is a word we don't use a lot. He's an apostate. He's committed apostasy. What is apostasy? Sounds like a really bad medical condition. I've got apostasy. Let's read, and, I'm, and most, let me just tell you that most of the material that I'm going to be sharing with you, I've already shared with you, but you just don't remember. Two years ago when I was preaching through Mark, remember when those of you that were here, we preached the gospel of Mark. We got to that passage in Mark 3 where it talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We've got to deal with that because I get that question asked all the time. What's the unpardonable sin? What's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So, most of this material is, is, comes from a sermon. I just imported my sermon. So, you've got a lot of my sermon notes in there. But let's just read this together and look at the issue of apostasy. So, let's all turn to Mark chapter 3 because I want us to be able to look at this very sensitive issue and an issue that is asked a lot. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What's the unpardonable sin? And then I'm going to look at a passage in Hebrews that a lot of people go to that say, oh, there's a passage in Hebrews that teaches you can follow, that you can lose your salvation. So I'm going to try to tie all this together and help us to see what is going on here. So let's read Mark chapter 3, 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Okay, you've got a very emphatic statement from Jesus saying there's one sin that will never be forgiven. It's eternal sin. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, these scribes and Pharisees are coming down from Jerusalem to interrogate Jesus. And they, 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 they give two charges against Jesus. Number one, they say... Jesus is possessed by a demon. And number two, they're saying he's not only possessed by a demon, but he's casting out demons. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer. He's casting out people in the name of Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies. And Jesus gives a very logical argument. He's like, okay, if I'm Satan and possessed by Satan, why would I be going casting demons out of people? It doesn't make sense. A house is divided against itself. Why would Satan go work against himself? If I'm truly of Satan, why would I go against Satan's powers and and deliver people from demon possession? It doesn't make sense. I've bound the strong man. Satan is the strong man. I've come and I've bound him. Now, and then he says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So it brings up a question that I will attempt to answer. You may be asking the question. I've had people come into my office and ask this. I think I may have committed the unforgivable sin. I think I may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I think I may have sinned so bad that I've lost my salvation because I've committed the unpardonable sin. Can you help me figure that out? What exactly is the unforgivable sin? Well, first of all, let me give you some encouragement. First of all, God is a God of immense forgiveness. Okay? The most grievous sins that you can commit, God can forgive. Can God forgive murder? Yes, he forgave Paul. Can God forgive homosexuality? Yes. Can God forgive a woman that, that, that commits an abortion? Yes. God can, can, can forgive the greatest of sins. The most grievous of sins, God can forgive. Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love who all, do call, who, who all who call upon you. Psalm 103, 2-3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's establish from the very beginning, God is a forgiving God. He can forgive all of your sins. As we talked about Sunday, the blood of Christ forgives us of all Our sins. But let me ask you a second question. Is that forgiveness automatic? How do we receive that forgiveness? Through repenting of our sins and confessing them. Okay, what have we been talking about all along? If you're dead in Christ and you're separated from Christ, you have to be born again. And as we looked at last week, God comes and gives you the gift of the new birth. Once you're born again, you repent of your sins. You trust in Jesus Christ, and then when you call out to Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, when you ask Jesus to forgive you, what happens? He forgives you. So that forgiveness comes when we call upon the name of the Lord, when we ask for that forgiveness, okay? And so once we ask for that forgiveness, once we trust in Jesus, we receive that forgiveness. We're we're justified. We're declared not guilty, okay? So God is a forgiving God. He says, I will forgive all sins, and he says in that passage, I will forgive all blasphemies they utter. So secondly, blasphemy or speaking evil against God or rejecting Christ is still forgivable. Think about it this way. If it was not forgivable, then none of us would be Christians. Because isn't there a time in your life, maybe maybe if you were saved as a child, you didn't this, but maybe as an adult, was there ever a time when you maybe blasphemed God? Used God's name in vain as a cuss word? said something negative about God? I mean, if that was true, then nobody would be a Christian because I'm sure even in this room, some of you have used God's name in vain before you were saved or you blasphemed God or said some derogatory things about Christ, okay? Think about Paul. Paul was a blasphemer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 and 14. What does Paul say about himself? What's Paul's personal testimony? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted, in unbe- acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord flowed, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul was a blasphemer, and he got saved, right? Paul was a murderer, and he got saved, right? So there were some really grievous sins that Paul for- was forgiven of. Let's think about David. What did David commit? Murder and adultery. If you can think of any of the Ten Commandments, David committed them, okay? But what does David say in Psalm 32, 1 through 2? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whom spirit there is no deceit. So David was forgiven of some grievous sins, right? Abraham lied twice. Noah got drunk Peter even denied Christ three times. But I would submit to you, all these men are saved or in heaven today, having committed the most grievous of sins, they were forgiven. So, with that being said, what is the unforgivable sin? What is the unpardonable sin of apostasy or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let me just kind of give you some information about these religious leaders, okay? These religious leaders had very hard hearts. If you go back and read the context of Mark, they had hard hearts. And here's the key. They were deliberately and rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. The tax collectors, the sinners, the bad people were coming into the kingdom before them. And these people were blinded and hardened and plotting to kill Jesus. And what they were doing is they were twisting the truth. What were they doing? They were saying that the work of the Holy Spirit was actually the work of the devil. So here are some issues related to these religious leaders. Number one, they had a clear knowledge of who Christ is. They had a clear knowledge of the power of the Holy Spirit in him. They never denied Jesus' power authority. They saw him do miracles. They saw his teaching. They never tried to disprove his miracles. They never tried to disprove what Jesus was doing. What they were trying to do was attribute what Jesus was doing to the work of Satan. They were denying that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to do these things. Number two, Jesus is before their very eyes in the flesh. He was baptized in front of them. He's doing these miracles in front of them. But yet, these these religious leaders are seeing Jesus in the flesh doing all these things. And they're still not coming to him. They're still hardened. Even when Jesus is right in front of their eyes doing all these miraculous things. They've put themselves in a position of being so hardened that they're beyond the reach of God's Repentance. Now, here's another thing. The tense of the verbs in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is fond of using the imperfect. Okay? Here's the imperfect (laughs) perfect tense, imperfect, all these tenses. Imperfect means past tense, continuous past tense action. He was continually, constantly doing this. And so they were not just saying these things once in a while. They were continuously, ongoing, deliberately, as a constant action, saying these negative things about Jesus. Okay? So, when we talk about a, a person being forgiven of sins and repenting, what, are, what is God's normal means of doing this? How does God normally bring a sinner to repentance? We looked at it last week with the eye, Regeneration. God draws a sinner. The Holy Spirit convicts a sinner. God brings a sinner to the point of the new birth to where they, they do repent, okay? Let me give you some quotes from some theologians here to kind of help you. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology writes this, talking about the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. Okay, that's a pretty big definition there. Uh, let's, Let's just see what a modern day person, John Piper, defines it. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that a person is never able to repent and thus be forgiven. He's saying it puts it a person in a position where they will never be regenerated. And Bishop Ryle says this, It is a union of light in the head and hatred in the heart. Okay? So let me give you a definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context of Mark. Okay? In Mark, we see religious leaders committing this. What is it? It's an intentional, willful, defiant rejection of the gospel. Not calmly, but with slanderous words that attribute the revelation of God to the devil. We're not talking about a person that commits murder. We're not talking about a person that commits adultery. We're talking about a person that's so hateful in their heart, so antagonistic, so combative, that they've made a willful, deliberate, premeditated, foot-in-the-sand decision that I am going to blaspheme Christ and have nothing to do with him. I've gotten to the so, so much. You think about Pharaoh in, in the Old Testament. He hardened his heart to the point that he was beyond God's reach. Now, let me just give you a little caveat. Some scholars say that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be committed today. And the reason why it cannot be committed today is because Jesus is not alive on the earth. They say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can only be committed when you are attributing Jesus works on earth to the acts of Satan and it was only confined to that time and place with those Pharisees and religious leaders so it can't be committed today. It was only reserved for those that were present with Jesus in Jesus' day. Now I understand that argument and logically I can see that but let me show you evidence from one other place in the Bible that says that I think this sin can be committed today. Whether you call it apostasy or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit I'm really talking about the same thing. So do you have a category In your mind, for a person who had faith in Christ, got excited about Christ, maybe was really involved in the church for a while, and then later on they defiantly and blatantly and um, with hatred in their heart denied everything about Jesus. I'm thinking of one person in my mind right now that maybe a lot of you know some of our youth workers. Okay, I'm not going to mention names, but you've got to have a category in your mind of somebody that maybe showed an excitement, maybe had a profession of faith, but now they're belligerent and antagonistic against anything related to the gospel. So how do we define these people? Are these people that lost their salvation? They were truly, legitimately saved, but then they lost it. Based upon all the evidence I just gave you from the Bible, can that be true? I would say it can't be true, just in my personal theology. So you've got to have another category. You've got to have a category in your mind for people that may have professed faith in Christ, got excited about Jesus, but now are belligerently and adamantly against Jesus. They've fallen away from the faith. Now, don't be scared by that terminology. They've fallen away from the faith. doesn't mean they lost their salvation. They've fallen away. They've never been saved in the first place. Now, let's look at a passage of Scripture that I think teaches this clearly. Now, here's the the issue. The passage of Scripture that I'm going to take you to is what most Arminians use as a proof that you can lose your salvation, okay? So I'm going to use this as proof that it's not losing your salvation, but it's the sin of apostasy. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tie my shoe so I don't trip over myself. Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to hear that. I want you to pay attention to the language, Okay? Before we even go into this little portion of Bible study, I want you to pay attention to the language that the writer of Hebrews uses. Okay? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible. Stop right there. What's the Greek word for impossible? Impossible. Okay, I'm just going (laughs) to let you know. It's the first word in the sentence, too, in the original language, which gives it an effect. Okay, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Basically he's saying it's impossible for these that have fallen away to be brought to repentance. It's impossible. Same thing Jesus says that's unforgivable. So, Who can commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Who can fall away? Can a genuine born-again believer do this? Absolutely not. If you are a true, regenerated, born-again believer, you cannot commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and you cannot fall away. Okay? Who then can commit this unpardonable sin? If Christians can't do it, then is it just any lost person can do this? Well, if any lost person can do this, and that means that nobody's going to get saved. Who, who can commit this sin? Let's look carefully at the text here, okay? Let me go and give you some, some information here, just in, in, the, in the grammar. From chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 3, the writer has been using the first person. What's first person? I, we, us. Who's he talking about? Believers. He uses words like brothers, many sons, believers, children of Abraham, those who have faith. He's been using the first the first person beloved. Okay, all of a sudden, it's not by mistake. I think it's purposeful. When he gets to verse 4 here in chapter 6, what does he switch to? Third person. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have tasted if they fall away third person they those so grammatically he's making a distinction between two groups of people us and them the us would be christians the them would be this group that he's about to explain that can fall away who is this group that he's talking about who are these people and here's where it gets kind of scary okay these are people who have been visible or external members of the church. Okay? They've confessed Christ and they've enjoyed the benefits of being around God's people. But yet they have decidedly rejected Christ. This is where the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit gets very scary. Who committed it in Mark? Was it pagans? Was it tax collectors and sinners? Who was it? It was the religious leaders. And as we see here in Hebrews, it's not the pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa that commit this sin. Apostasy, falling away, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is is not committed by pagans that don't know the truth. Okay? It's basically committed by religious people who've had close proximity to Jesus. They know the Bible. They've moved within Christian circles. and may have even gotten baptized. But here's the big difference. They were never, ever truly born again. They were fakes. They knew enough of Christianity. They knew enough of Christianese. They knew enough to be around God's people. But yet they decidedly and and, 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 and belligerently rejected it. Now let's see how this plays out in Hebrews. Because what a lot of people will say is, Well, here's proof right here that you can lose your salvation. You can fall away. But my question is, we're looking at the same passage of Scripture. If you have an Arminian that says, okay, I'm looking at this passage of Scripture, and I'm seeing people falling away. And we who believe the doctrines of grace or or believe in eternal security, we look at this passage of Scripture and say, okay, we see people who are falling away. We both see the same thing. The question is, who are these people? The Arminian would say, these are true believers that really did have salvation, but they lost it. We would say, no, these are not true believers who never had salvation, but they faked it really good. Okay, and I'm going to show you that in the text to see if we can see it. And then I'm going to give you the parable of the soils to show it in another place. Okay, Look at the words here. There's five benefits that the writer of Hebrews uses here to explain those who've had the benefits of being around Christianity, but they were never truly saved. What's the first one? They've been enlightened. For it is impossible to restore to repentance those who've once been enlightened. Now, that's a weird word to use, isn't it? Enlightened? What does that word mean? They have knowledge of something. They they may even understand the facts of the gospel. They may even know the Bible pretty good. I want you to notice what words are not used in this passage of Scripture. What biblical theological words are not used in this passage of Scripture that normally talk about salvation? Do You see words like, Repentance, faith, justification, forgiveness, regeneration, adoption, any of those words here? None of the words that are associated with salvation show up in this passage of scripture. These people were close, but they weren't saved. It really means that they just had exposure to the gospel. They were enlightened to the gospel. They, they heard sermons. They may have even been in a Sunday school class. They knew what the Bible said. They were enlightened. Okay, secondly, what's the second benefit? They tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted it. That's an interesting term. When you taste something, what do you do? Eh, a little taste, like you go to the ice cream store and you know, they give you the samples like Baskin Robbins. I want to give a little taste. You know, when, you, when you're really hungry, do you want to just taste something? What do you do? You eat it and you ingest it and you fully digest it. Okay, what he's saying here is they were around faith, but it was never really faith. They had a taste here and there, but it was never really internalized. It was never really fully, they never fully swallowed Jesus. They never were fully saved. They were never fully regenerated. They had just tasted, they'd just been around it. They were enlightened. Okay, thirdly, they were partakers in the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews uses a very different word here to talk about the relationship with the Holy Spirit. He uses the word partakers. Nowhere else in the Bible does this word ever come close to talking about our relationship with the Holy Spirit, that particular Greek word. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, what words do we use? We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, as we'll see this Sunday. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. That word, that Greek word, just means that we have an association. But as believers, we don't have an association with the Holy Spirit. We have Him in us. So it's kind of like you were close enough to regeneration, you are close enough to the Holy Spirit, but you didn't have Him. Okay, fourthly. They tasted, there's the same word again, the goodness of the word of God. Okay, they've been under good teaching, good preaching. They tasted the word of God. They heard it. Again, this sin is not reserved for the pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa. The sin of apostasy is for people that have been around church, been around the truth. And Then fifthly, they tasted the power of the age to come. The age to come. If you go back in Hebrews chapter 2, Verses 3-4 through it talks about Jesus performing miracles. The same Greek word for miracles is the word here, powers to come. And so when you go back to that Mark passage, what was Jesus doing? He was performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what were those religious leaders doing? They were attributing it to Satan. They tasted the powers of the... they, They saw the miracles of Jesus. And you may be even in a church where you're around miracles, you're around the spiritual activity of the church. You are in, you're sitting in among God's people witnessing all the things related to salvation, all the things related to, to the miraculous, all the things related to, to all these things, but you've never been what? Saved. And there comes a point where you say, I'm decidedly, deliberately, maliciously, and stubbornly going to reject it all and walk away the Bible says here, if you do that, it's impossible for you to be brought back to salvation. Now, do we have any biblical evidence of people doing this? Let's just look here real quick. 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. If you read earlier, Demas was a traveling companion of Paul. And all of a sudden, he says, he's deserted me. So Paul calls out somebody by name here who was an apostate, Demas. He's remembered in the Bible for deserting. Okay, Was he really saved in the first place? Well, he proved it by what? Deserting. In chapter 8 of Acts, you have a magician by the name of Simon Magus. He was baptized by Philip, and later Peter got in his face and told him that he was wicked. He was in the bonds of iniquity. Now, we really don't, when you read that, you really don't know if Simon Magus was, was lost or saved. All you know is that he went through a baptism. He made a profession of faith, and Peter got in his face and said, you're a wicked man. We really don't know, but you have an example there of somebody going through the motions of baptism and an apostle coming and getting your face and saying, you're a wicked person. We don't know the, the Bible doesn't give us the end of the story. The Bible doesn't say Simon Magus came and repented and was, and was restored. We don't have that. And what about the greatest example, Judas? Okay, he's the greatest example of a person to commit apostasy. What did Judas do? Did Judas preach the gospel? You bet. He was sent out two by two with the apostles. He preached, he taught, he performed miracles, he cast out demons. He did all those. He was enlightened, he tasted the heavenly gift, he was around the miraculous, he was in the presence of Christ. But what did he do? He decidedly and deliberately rejected Jesus. Now let's look at the parable of the soils real quick. Mark chapter 4, 16 through 17. This is the second of the soils, but Jesus says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So let's just talk about this. You've seen people that do this. They hear the word and they get excited. They make a profession of faith. They're all excited about the gospel. But what's the problem? There's no what? Root. Root meaning what? There's no real salvation. And if there's no root, what's going to happen? They will endure for a while, but then when all the persecution and pressure comes, what are they going to do? They will fall away. I believe that passage clearly teaches that Only the fourth soil was truly saved because they had a root, they produced fruit, okay? So we need to stop and just say, no genuine Christian can commit apostasy. No genuine Christian is going to fall away. No genuine Christian is going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And let me stop here and give you some pastoral care. Because I've had people come in. I had, I've had i had people call me on the phone weeping. I had a woman call on the phone weeping. She says, I think I may have just committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. She was in tears. She was grieved. She was wondering if she was going to go to hell because she had done that. And she wanted to make sure that she was still saved. You know, guess what I told her? Yep, you're going to hell. No, I didn't say that. I said, you know what? The very fact that you're bothered by it and the very fact that you're weeping over it and the very fact that you're concerned about Sinning against your Savior shows me that you're not committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because if you did do it, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't be calling me in tears. Okay? So some people have tender consciences where they are so concerned that they may have done that. And evidence that you haven't done that is that you're concerned about it. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, Wayne Grudem says this. The fact... That unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it, yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek after God, certainly do not fall into the category of those who are guilty of it. Okay? Now, let me just say what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not. What apostasy is not. We need to be careful. It's not committing particular sins. Somebody comes and says, you know, I, divorced, I committed adultery against my wife. I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. I think I've lost my salvation. Or, I've, or, or, or a girl comes to me and says, you know what, I've had an abortion. I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. Or I think I may be homosexual. I've committed the unforgivable sin. Okay. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and apostasy is not the committing of particular sins. Okay, those sins can be forgiven. It is a clear, decisive, deliberate, willful act of rejection. Okay, in that Hebrews passage where it says they fall away, the Greek tense there means it's deliberate, it's decisive, it is a premeditated, deliberate act of the will. Okay? Now, let's go back to the text here in Hebrews chapter 6. Go look at verse 9. Okay? He's going to give an example here actually verse 7, he kind of gives almost an example of the parable of soils here. What does he say? For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cult and receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. What's he saying there? He's given an example saying, if you're truly saved, you're going to produce fruit. If you're not truly saved, you're not going to produce fruit. It's going to be evidence that you're truly an apostate. Now look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, what does he switch back to? Remember who he was talking to? I, we, us, they. He comes back and says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to what? Salvation. So he switches back to Christians and he says, you know what, I've been talking for a while about things that don't belong to salvation. But in your case, let's get back to talking about things that belong to salvation. It's almost like he's, he's, he has this parenthesis in the middle of his talk. He's saying, okay, here's all the blessings you have as a Christian. Now let's talk about those people that will commit apostasy. Now let's get back from talking to those people. Let's come back, beloved, and let's talk about you again. Let's talk about the things related to salvation. You see what he's doing there? He's kind of got this parenthesis in there. Okay? Um, John Piper gives this illustration about how apostasy can happen with hardness of heart. And I'll just read it for you. He says, These apostates are like a buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. He lands and begins to eat. He knows it is dangerous because the falls are just ahead. But he looks at his wings and says to himself, I can fly to safety in an instant. And he goes on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws are frozen in the ice, and there is no escape. Neither in this age nor in the age to come, the spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. So how do we respond to this teaching? Kind of scary, in my opinion. Not for the true Christian. It doesn't scare me for the true Christian, but as a pastor, it scares me for a lot of people that may profess faith but not possess it. So let's talk about a couple of practical applications. Number one, we can never stand in judgment and pronounce a person an apostate. I can't stand and say, you're an apostate. The point is, we don't know the end of the story. God could be working behind the scenes. They could just be a sinner that's under some severe, I mean, a Christian under some severe discipline, and God's bringing them back. So we can never pronounce anybody apostate. It's not our job to pronounce somebody apostate. Number two, we can never judge somebody's salvation. We can't look at somebody's life and say, you're not saved. We can inspect the fruit, but even then, we've got to be careful. What I often tell people is, if you're unsure, treat them like they would be a lost person. But How do you treat a lost person? With love and compassion, and you consistently preach the gospel to them. And you pray for God to do a work in their heart. You don't abandon them. You don't, you don't belittle them. You don't um, not be their friend. You just continue to, to love them and encourage them. But you know in your mind, you know what? I may be dealing with a lost person here. I need to pray for their salvation. Even if they've made a profession of faith and they're acting all crazy. Okay, here's another thing. Persecution is one of the main things that will show a person's true colors. When push comes to shove, those that are truly saved will endure to the end. Those that are not, when persecution comes, you're going to see the difference. And I would submit to you in our day and age as things may get a little worse, as Christianity is less accepted in America, maybe. I'm not saying like anytime soon, but maybe. I think in America, you're going to see a big difference between those that are truly Christians and those that were just faking it. And when push comes to shove, you may have some people that stand up and totally reject Christianity to protect their own neck. And it shows that they were never saved. Let me give you one last verse here in John. 1 John. 1 John 2.19. John says the reason. John gives us a reason here. He says... They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. Okay, what's he saying here? There was a group that kind of came into the church and they, they were part of things. They looked like they were, you know, they were in the fellowship. They, they, but then what did they do? They left. Proving that they weren't what? Really saved. Because if they were really saved, they would have done what? What's the word he used there? they would have continued. They would have persevered. They would have endured to the end. So what's the doctrine of eternal security? The one side of the coin is that God saves those finally. You can never lose your salvation. If you're truly a Christian, you can never lose it. The flip side is perseverance of the saints. God in His grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, works in you to sustain you to the end and make sure you finish the the finish line. Can a person lose their salvation? No. Can there be apostates who fall away from the faith? Yes. Showing that they were never saved in the first place. Apostasy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's almost the same thing. Now, again, it comes back to the Trinity. I'll just close with this, and then we can maybe have some time for questions. The Father chose the people. Jesus died for a people. The Spirit regenerates those people. And then God just makes sure that those people end up in heaven. I mean, it's just as simple as that. What God started, he's going to finish. Okay. Any questions on the doctrine of eternal security? Or perseverance of the saints? Or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Or apostasy? Yes, Brent? A person who appears to be a believer who okay. Good question. The question is, what about a person that commits suicide? that appears to be a believer. Let me say right now that the Roman Catholic Church believes that suicide is an unforgivable sin. Okay. If that person is truly, let me just say this, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you would not reach deep depths of despair to be suicidal, Okay? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't have suicidal thoughts and you, and you, you can't be so much in despair. Now, that's not the ideal, obviously. So I would say this, based upon justification, Brent. If you are truly justified, you've truly trusted Christ for salvation. Your sins have been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to you and you stand not guilty before the Father. And then you take your own life. That's a sin but it's not an unforgivable sin, you'll still go to heaven if you're truly saved. That's not an unpardonable sin. It's grievous, it's, it's amazing, it's, it's grievous, it's horrendous, it's, it's devastating, but it's still forgivable if you've been justified. Even if there's no repentance afterwards because the question is, when, were, when was that sin paid for? If God knew you were going to commit that and all your sins past, present, and future paid for on the cross, that was already a done deal. Okay, because if we had to wait, because there's a lot of sins we commit that we don't ask for repentance or forgiveness for that we may not even know of. If we had to go our whole life making sure that we were always asking for forgiveness, we'd live neurotic lives and never resting in the finished work of Christ. So my answer would be, if they are truly, truly saved, as sad and as grievous and as heartbreaking as that is, if they are truly saved, I could say to a parent of a child that, or, you know, or, or anybody, if they were truly saved, they are in heaven. God's grace covers them, even though this is painful. Okay. And sometimes you do, let me just tell you a hard thing to do, and, and Bill knows this, being in the industry of funerals. Sometimes I do funerals with people, and I ask them about their salvation, and I don't know. And I'm not going to stand up at a funeral and say, so-and-so is in heaven, because I don't know that. What I can do at that point is give comfort to the family, that God is good, and I can turn it back on the audience and say, you know, why don't you find out, let's talk about how you can know for sure where you're going to go when you die, and then present the gospel. But there's been a lot of times where I've done a funeral where I didn't know that person. There's one time, I, we talked about this, Bill, the, the one time I got a funeral, it was one of my first funerals here at Emmanuel, and I met with the family, and on their death certificate, on the obituary, it said that he loved wild, uh, what strong drink and wild women. And then I asked to see a Christian, they're like, oh no, he's not a Christian at all. He, he hated, he rejected Christ, he hated Christ. So I had to do, a, that was the hardest funeral I've ever done. I had to do a funeral of a guy I knew, rejected Christ outright, And everybody in the audience rejected Christ outright. It was in the old building. It was the coldest message I've ever presented. I presented the gospel, but it was like a brick wall. What do you do at that moment? There's no—I mean, you try to give hope, but in my heart, I know I'm preaching a funeral for a guy that's in hell. That's hard as a pastor to do. So you just offer hope of the gospel and say, "I want you to make sure that you know where you're going when you die." We can't stand in judgment of anybody's salvation. I don't think we're to pronounce our children as saved. I don't think we have permission to say, my son, this is just my personal opinion, God is the one that confirms salvation in a person's heart, and and God is the one that prompts them to make a profession of faith. And I think parents can sometimes be in danger of pronouncing their child saved, when really it should be, you look for evidence, you look for... um, you look for confirmation, you do the discipleship, you do catechism or whatever you do, and you let it come from the child. And if you feel comfortable as a parent that it's coming from the child, then yes, you, you, know, you baptize them. But I think sometimes parents can pronounce their child saved because at one point they prayed and asked Jesus into their heart. Wait a little bit to see, especially if they're four. Wait till they're seven, eight, nine, ten. See, you know, God will work on them. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, Brent. Good question.